just want to throw one thought out there is that uh, I don't see gorillas on covers anymore. Damn shame. <laughs> oh, thank God. I mean, yeah, that's too bad. Especially purple <laughs> ones. CCF in depth. Hello, everybody. I'm George. And I'm still Jeff. And I'm Ed. <laughs> and we have Ed with us today. Welcome, Ed. Thank you very much. Today's episode, we have summoned the great Ed O'Toole to help us with um, a new topic today. We are talking about DC's transformation in the late 1960s and the early 1970s under the uh, watching influence of Carmine Infantino. Holy gosh, I said that completely wrong. Carmine, right? Carmine. Carmine. Carmine is fine. How, how did you say it? I I, I said Carmine. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you're from France or something. <laughs> Could be. Today we are talking about uh, Carmine Infantino's influence on DC Comics in the late 1960s, from 1966 up through 1971. He played an important role even beyond that, but those are years we're focusing on today because Ed said so. <laughs> and that works for me. So we don't want it to be a mini series. Right. So Ed, start us off if you wouldn't mind. Um, just a general overview. What's special about this time period and why is it worthy of our discussion? Well, I think I'm probably like a lot of fans of comics or any popular culture. You associate uh, a time when you were young, often with whatever was going on in the culture. And I had started reading comics in 1962. And I would occasionally be able to buy comics, but I was a little kid. So I didn't, you know, go down to the store and buy 10 comics at a shot. Didn't have that kind of money, didn't have that kind of access. As uh, time goes by, I loved them. And I especially loved DC. Not that I didn't like other comics, but there just seemed to be more DC on the stands. And you couldn't get too many um, of the Marvels, for instance. You just didn't see them that often. Anyway. Um, That's because the fix was in. Oh, it definitely was in. And, you know, there were there were there were some guys who, uh, you know, find things that fall off the back of trucks who were involved in the distribution system, if you know what I mean. <laughs> in any event, uh, uh, when when uh, the changes happened at D.C., uh, which I didn't know, of course, as a as a young fan, as a kid, that Carmen Infantino was responsible or at least in charge of D.C. when these were going on. I was also getting a little bit more independence. I had a little bit more money in my pocket. I was very lucky because I went to high school in Newark, New Jersey, and I had to take public transportation to get there. And um, my mom, being the wonderful angel she was, said to me the day before I started school, she said, look, I'm going to give you this money so you have it in case anything ever happens. And she <laughs> reached over to me and gave me what she dubbed my emergency dollar. And quote unquote, something happened. And oh, and I looked at that dollar and I said, Yeah, I'm not going to get in any trouble where I'm going to need this buck. I'm going to find some comic book stores around the high school. And long story short, um, 1967, I start high school. 1968 really represents a big change in comics because Marvel got uh, the distribution um, 
contract changed. They could put more titles out there. DC was already running a little bit scared of Marvel. And suddenly it was a time that, oh my God, there were just so many comics on the stands. And I had access to them finally, because as I said, distribution was helter-skelter in those days. And the more what we called candy stores that were around, the better chance you had to find new comics. What an exciting area oh, yeah. it was. I wish I'd been around for it, truly. Well, it, it really was great. And as I said, you know, everybody talks about the thrill of the hunt for their comics. And uh, in those days, the hunt involved long walks and finding new stores and hoping that you would get there on time and waiting for the guy to undo the bundle sometimes. And um, and of course, comics were not the popular um, uh, art form, so to speak, that they they are today. You know, you couldn't just walk around and say, "Yeah, I'm I'm reading comics." You get your head handed to you. <laughs> yeah, you you could if you wanted to get beat up. Yeah, and it always ticked me off because you know, comic book just didn't quite fit inside the back of a spiral notebook. So that, you know, and and I was not a book bag kid because you get beat up if you had a book bag for crying out loud, and um, so you um, you know you had to discuss. This was a love that dare not speak its name in those days. This is wild. You had to hide. You had to hide your comics from the bullies, and you also had to hide it from your mom to see that you didn't squander the buck. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. And 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 uh, you know, my mother would replenish the dollar every so often, not as often as I I liked. I'd lie for a couple of weeks and say, "No, no, no, I'm fine." But uh, and plus, mom, my mother. I got an emergency, mom. It's quick. <laughs> I want one. Yeah, and my mother was not uh, thrilled all the time with the idea that I was quote unquote wasting my money on comic books. So I didn't want to emphasize the fact that I was, you know. Had, had a little space under my bed or in the bottom of my closet that was slowly filling up with, uh, you know, issues of star-spangled war stories. And, and wow. the, the beautiful irony in all this is that clearly you were not the only one hiding these in your book bags and spiral notebooks because there was a huge market DC and Marvel were vying for that wasn't coming from nowhere. I know. And and, and I was envious of all these kids who would write into the letters pages and say, my, my, my pals and I have a comic book club. I'd say, wow, those are gutsy kids. <laughs> How do you go up to somebody and say, hey, want to start a comic book club? Jeez. Right. It was, it was, it would not have been easy. And I will say, and this will this might be a topic later on as we're talking about the effects of this 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 time period. Uh, it was I was able to come out of the comic closet, so to speak, before I finished high school, believe it or not. Mm. How'd you do that? Well, uh part of the uh effect of the, the changes in the comics at both DC and Marvel was that they were getting some attention in the newspapers and on television. And uh, remember now, this is coming right after the whole Batmania phenomenon. So that comics really took it on the chin then, you know, you'd be saying, oh, no, no, they're really not like that all the time. The way you saw them on Adam West. Um, but by 1970-71, because you had this influx of younger artists, younger writers, suddenly there was a change in comics and they shifted to be more reality-based, or at least for comic books anyway, they were more reality-based. So you had all these current events playing into them. And uh, I, my senior year in high school, 1971, the New York Times had a front page article, uh, a front of the front cover article and a big art, a big story on Sergeant Rock and the relevance in comics because they did a, a My Lai takeoff, essentially, in wow. uh, Sergeant Rock with a soldier massacring civilians. And this was pretty radical. And um, 
comics were definitely then sticking their head out of the sand, so to speak, and saying, we're not just for kids. So if at that point I had trusted friends and I can, I vividly remember we were all involved in our school newspaper and, uh, uh, in my senior year, we went over to Columbia University for some big, huge convention uh, of news, high school newspaper kids. And there were speakers and all this sort of thing. And on the way over, I was just desperate because I'm saying to my friends, hey, we've got to st- there's a candy store on the way. We've got to stop. What do you what do we stop here for it? <laughs> and my friend Murph was driving. Murph said, what are we stopping here for? And I said, please, please. And uh, and, and my other friend said, Ed wants a comic book. I know that's what it is. And <laughs> yeah. you, go, you go into this new new territory, and um, suddenly I'd say, oh, there's one. i jump out of the car. I picked up the only copy I ever saw on the stands of the Green Lantern, Green Arrow series in which Spiro Agnew was the main villain <laughs> or a guy who looked like Spiro Agnew. I come back in. They said, well, I hope it was worth it. I said, look at this, you guys. Look at this. And so my couple of my friends were mildly impressed in the sense that they said, oh, well, okay, so it's not just, you know, up, up, and away Superman beating up some alien. And I said, no, no, this is serious stuff, okay? So it worked worked out well. I I I'm sorry, go ahead, Jeff. I wish YouTube had been around back then, just seeing reaction takes for people who were expecting, you know, bow, you know, Biff, Sock, and saw Speedy shooting up with a heroin needle in his arm on Green Lantern, Green Arrow. It must oh. have been incredible. Yes. Those are great times. <laughs> Good times, Speedy. Uh, no, it, it, it was. And um, and as you know, listen, I was 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. So I'm not opening these, you know, with the same uh, maturity, so to speak, that I would if I, I were reading them now. Now, some of them look very self-conscious, kind of silly, pretentious, whatever. But this was so new, and it was and it was a, a great way, really, to reach out to a younger audience. Let's face it. Absolutely. So, so let's um let's dial back a bit to the beginning of this change and set the stage a bit. It's 1966. DC is coming off the strength of the new Batman television series, but at the same time, they're starting to feel the heat from Marvel. Um, and as somebody who was there at the time, what wasn't working at DC that needed fixing or tweaking or revisiting? Well, the the odd thing about DC was that if you were reading Marvel in DC, you could find a niche at DC that seemed a little bit like Marvel. Uh, and I speak here of things like Doom Patrol, uh, uh, Metamorpho, which were irreverent in, in their style, uh, in their artwork. They were different, uh, but they were irreverent about about comics. It was almost there there was there was a little meta aspect to those comics. Uh, which you kind of saw over at at Marvel. But for the most part, DC was like several different little companies, and each one had its unique style. And the main ones, of course, in in that time were Superman and Batman. And Weisinger had complete control of the Superman line. And um, Batman had nearly collapsed, which, you know, precipitated the need for the new look in 64. And then DC and Batman comics had the sugar high of the of the um, Batmania era. And that just dropped off the the edge of the table, so to speak, and uh, very, very quickly. So they saw that Marvel and Marvel at that time was getting a lot of PR um, about the fact that there were college kids. And I use all capital letters for that college (laughs) kids reading comics. And as a young comics reader at the time, 
I'm wicked impressed when I read a letter to, and he says, I'm a student at uh, East Jibib Community College. I'm going, wow, that's a college <laughs> kid reading this. Or somebody would, comp I remember very distinctly Irene Vardanoff, who was always writing to the Julie Schwartz um, edited uh, comics. And she commented on a reference to Shakespeare in one of the, in the very first um, uh, Riddler story since the Golden Age. And, um, and, and she's writing about this. I'm going, oh, my gosh. Uh, there, actually, there were two stories in that comic. The, the one story had references to Othello, Jeff. Nice. And the, the main villain was Victor Iago. And, of course, I didn't know <laughs> what that was. But then Irene writes, and I'm going, oh, my God, there's so much here. And uh, it, it was pretty fascinating. But uh, Marvel was getting all that play because they were popular on the um, on the college campuses. Kids were were still reading them. And suddenly DC realizes, you know what? The Weisinger model of the kids stick around for a few years, but they're gone by the time they're 12, just doesn't seem to be working anymore. Mort Weisinger, uh, in his letters pages, referred to Marvel as brand I and had all these uh, snarky remarks about them and uh, encouraged readers to write in and talk about how bad brand I was as opposed to DC, which was, you know, they were the Cadillac, so to speak. Of the um, of the industry, well, Mark Weisinger was known for being a son of a gun that nobody liked. Not even his kids liked them. Yeah, so, yeah. So you know, he's he's putting there that that's the that's tantamount to whistling in the dark because he can hear the footsteps coming from Marvel. <laughs> right. and, and and a big difference was not the thirteen year old or whatever. It was, the difference was DC was was uh, plot driven, and Marvel was mm. character driven. And, mm -hmm. and you'll come back for a character, even if the story is not good. But if the plot yeah. is not good, you're out. Yeah. There were no so, continued stories really at DC. Nothing on the on the scope of what Marvel did for a long time there. There were, you know, chapters. They were very, they were melodramatic. They were like soap operas. And as you said, George, you just, you got hooked by the characters. You know, and yeah. you could pick up a Batman story from 64 or 5 and even a new look story from 67 or 68. And you'd say, well, you know, basically the formula is the same. The art might be a little slicker, and his his costume has that yellow uh, symbol behind the yellow color behind the um, the bat symbol. But in many ways, you know, the characters didn't change. And, uh, and Marvel, Marvel had the did. illusion of change. Yes, even if they didn't change. Although I I argue with that too, because they did change. People got married, people had kids. Mm -hmm. You know, people graduated from high school, so there was change. Yeah, but they 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 changed it just just a little bit. So you can keep coming back for the soap opera aspect. Right. I think to go back to the Cadillac idea as well, like a big issue with DC in 1966 is it, was, it wasn't just standing still. It was defiantly standing still, um, where Infantino has pointed out the fact that um, all the uh, major editors of the time period, um, specifically Schwartz, Boltonoff, Weisinger, mm -hmm. um, all came out of the pulps. That was where they started, and they weren't really looking to innovate or change beyond that. It was a business. They learned the rules, and they were going to keep things that had always worked going the way they always had. And yeah. Orlando pointed out the fact that um, each one of those editors – actually, I have the quote. I'll read it right here. Um, Every editor, for some reason, had acquired a clone, the freelance writer who got the most work out of that editor. That writer acquired a lot of authority and could influence the editor as to whether you worked or not, sometimes acting as editor. I think it became a very exclusive club after time was not meeting the market needs. It essentially became a self-serving machine that wasn't looking to innovate or do anything different whatsoever. Right. And I don't think, I don't think, right. They didn't need to. 
they pretty right. much had everything to themselves, and then along comes uh, along comes Marvel. Uh, and Weisinger, I will I will say this though, there are little uh, kind of uh, gems in there hidden away. Like for instance, it was Weisinger who worked with Jim Shooter, and whatever you think about Jim Shooter, he's thirteen years old. He takes a lot of what he was getting out of reading Marvel and brings it over to Adventure Comics right. and the Legion. And suddenly the Legion, which I had always read as a kid, suddenly you're saying, oh, wow, these these are really people with personalities as opposed to just interchangeable people in uniforms. What happened with Jim Shooter is that when he was young, he was very sick. And what he did is he analyzed. He actually bought Marvel mm. comic books and kept reading them and analyzing them to see what was the difference between a Marvel comic and a DC comic. This is before Weisinger. So he wa walked in and when he started submitting stories that were accepted and published, it's because they were not like a DC comic. They were closer to being a Marvel comic book. Right. And that's, that, no. and that's they needed that change. I, I um, no, and I, and I actually applaud Weisinger for doing that. He strikes you as the kind of guy who would just dismiss that sort of thing. But mm -hmm. the kid came in and he, and I know he came from a very poor background, if I'm not mistaken. So this was really a godsend for him. And Weisinger, to his credit, took him under his, um, under his wing, so to speak, and uh, helped him along. And uh, but the kid came to him and said, "Listen, this is this is what you should be doing with that particular comic, at least." Right. You know, DC had no clue. They thought that the reason Marvel was selling comic books was because the art was bad. I mean, they <laughs> literally would have meetings and say, "Look, this must be it. Yeah. Look how bad this drawing is." Yeah. Which is outrageous. They would they would talk about Jack Kirby drawings at the peak of his power. Yeah. <laughs> so they really had no clue. And they oh, also and had a bunch of fiefdoms. You mentioned Weisinger and, and mm -hmm. the other people running their uh their their, their Batman line, the Superman yeah. line. You couldn't tell them a thing. No. You couldn't tell them a thing. They would not change anything. Well, they'd been there since dirt was new. And really, and I guess in many ways, comics really hadn't changed much. And uh they'd almost, you know, Marvel had almost collapsed. When they were Atlas, and uh, they really had the place themselves, and they just they didn't bother going into the areas like the Dell comics. You know, there were comics obviously for younger kids, but not in the, not to the same extent that they had them at those other companies. And um, Marvel, you know, s smacked them. They really yeah. did. Sometimes so, you need a wake up call. So you, speaking, yeah. speaking of wake up calls, the beginning of that change seems to be Irwin Donenfield, who even though he'd been in charge of DC since 1952. I, I'm not quite sure what clicked in 1966 per se, or if he'd been doing new things all along, but I, I know by this point, he's starting to look at, at cover appeal. He's starting to realize that art sells a book. Um, mm -hmm. The gorilla covers we mentioned before we started recording this, that yes. he had, he'd figured out every time there's a gorilla on a cover, it sells yeah. better. So put gorillas in every story. Yeah. And then at a certain point, he realizes that, uh, that Infantino's covers are always selling better than issues that don't have Infantino covers. So he starts drafting Infantino to do the cover first and then have the writer write the story around it. It starts with, I think, one or two um, franchises and then sort of just expands out organically over time to the point that eventually Infantino is basically directing the, not necessarily writing or rather not necessarily drawing each cover, but at no. least doing a, a sketch or a, a, a proof of how each cover should look for the entire line at a certain point. Yeah, and and... When you read about this, you don't not you're never sure whom whom to believe when you're reading about comic book history. And Infantino says that Marvel made him an offer to come over and work for them, and he brought it back to um, 
Donenfeld and Donenfeld said, well, um, uh, we'll give you a little bit more, mo more money and we'll also make you the quote unquote art director. And uh, then that kind of segued very quickly into editorial director. And he mm -hmm. became involved more in the, um, as well in the direction of the comics and so forth. I mean, it's obviously the, the truth is somewhere in there. Uh, the point is that, as you said, Infantino was sort of the guy who they, the go-to guy on covers. And there were a lot of DC covers that were great. And I, I know as a kid, and this is all, again, you know, perception, this is like not having the stats in front of you in baseball, but the eye test, DC, Marvel comics looked gray at times. You know, they weren't printed, it seemed, on as, on as um, good a piece of newsprint, if you will, as DC comics were. And Charlton was, you know, at the, at the bottom of the heap. I don't know what they were printed on, like, like, uh, paper towel rolls or something but uh infantino got to influence the look of the whole uh company and then with the change with the the sale of uh, of dc to kinney and then eventually to warner brothers um he he was appointed editorial director and I, he wrote he rose pretty quick I'm, i just want to yes. add one thing to the cover uh we say it became like the cover director uh he said that many times he would draw a cover and they would make a story around the drawing. Right. That was, was a no, Julius... There was no story yet. It was yes. just a cover. That was a Schwartz specialty. He would have these <laughs> covers drawn, and he'd, and he'd call in the writer and go, give me a story. But, and, but, uh, but, no, but no writer credit. So, uh, you know, someone, not owes, someone owes Stan Lee an apology or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, Schwartz, you know what Schwartz used to do, and I don't know offhand which year this began, but he had several, um, for, for a couple of years there, he, he would give um, the original uh, art to the best letter writer of the of the issue and the and or the script. Wow! So there were Ed, people up there. Ed, it, it was worse than that. They said that he used to take the original art and cut it into pieces uh, I, and, give, I, and give it to pe people that were visiting. Oh, you get yeah. this panel. You get panel five. <laughs> it's outrageous. Yeah, but I mean, back then they said that they didn't care about the art return. They was they didn't oh. realize it funny yet. I know, I know. You feel for these guys too, because you know, so, sometimes I, I say to myself, these guys, you know, many of them did really fine work, and they had to know that, like, where is this all going? Mm -hmm. You know, it's going into the ash heap. For, you know, during the golden age in particular, let's get those comics and collect them, and uh, and and even even then they were disposable items. Nobody ever thought of collecting them in that way, and certainly not saving the art. Jeez, it wasn't a thing yet. The, the, no. Even collecting comic wasn't a thing. There were no, no. bad boards. There's nothing like that. And even no, no. The, the transition of consciousness that's happening in the industry at this point, you know, DC is just at this point beginning to comprehend the idea that the visuals matter. <laughs> it's such a strange thing to say when you're talking about sequential mm -hmm. art, but it's really just this point that Don Enfield, in, in then empowering Infantino to do this, realizes oh my gosh, art actually matters to the people buying yes. these comics. So yeah. of course the original artwork wouldn't have seemed any more important to them than the original scripts. Just part of the disposable, you know, just one more uh, a consumable item, so to speak. Right. But the, Jeff, uh, what, what I'm trying to say is that the artists themselves didn't want the art back. They were oh, like, what do I care? I no, got paid. Right. It wasn't collectible. Oh. There was no money to be made from it. Yeah. Why would Where would they, they store right. it? You know, it became an issue. It was like, well, what do I care? I got paid. And let's not forget too, when you're when you're dealing with you know first generation creators at DC as well, you know they they didn't necessarily even see what they were doing as something to be proud of. You know this was a relatively shameful industry that you paid your yeah. dues in before you get into advertising. 
Yeah, right. I, I forget. All right, now it, it escapes me who I was reading about a few weeks ago who said, you know, I never even told, I tried not to tell my neighbors what I did. I might have even been Kirby. <laughs> might have even been Kirby who, you know, he said, well, I didn't really want to want to say what I was doing because people would look down on you for it. And, I, and you were home all day working. <laughs> it was kind of a, uh, you know, uh, they, they probably questioned if you were actually working or not or whether you're doing something illegal in your cellar or what. I've always wondered about that because Kirby was such a tough guy. And he's, hmm. you know, if you are worried, Ed, about being seen buying a comic book, you know, yeah. he's, he's making them. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, so, so um, 1967, Kinney, the Kinney uh, Company ends up buying DC. Donovanfield is let go pretty soon afterwards. Now, Infantino is editorial director. By 1971, he's publisher. And this is where we start seeing these major changes happen at DC. And to ascribe them all to Infantino would be unfair and incorrect, but certainly DC transformed significantly under his editorial control. And I know, Ed, a big part you wanted to talk about is him empowering artists as editors. In some respects, I say to myself, you know, I'm always looking for it to be kind of a story. And part of the story with Infantino is, hey, all his life he'd been an editor, excuse me, an artist. And now he has a chance to sit in the editor's chair and say, all these years you've been... Uh, you, you've been telling us what to do as as the artists, and of course, we're such a crucial part of of making these things popular and saleable. And suddenly, he gets to sit in that chair, and what does he do? He says, "It's the artists that I'm going to give um, some free reign here. This is a visual medium. I need artists." And um, he goes out and um, kind of restocks the pond, if you will. Um, you know, Weisinger sort of drifted out by himself. I don't know whether he saw the writing on the wall or was just finished. But uh, he was he would I would have thought of him as a major obstacle, but he left and uh, and he reaches out and he realizes that uh, over at Charlton, for instance, he's got Dick Giordano. He plucks uh, Orlando, whom he remembers from the EC days and uh, Sikowski, whom a lot of people never cared for as an artist. If you if you read the old letters pages and you listen to people today, they didn't care for a lot of his artwork, particularly on Justice League. And I, I understand. But he gives him an editorship and uh, he takes, he, he's, he was the fellow in charge of, of Wonder Woman and changing all that. Uh, obviously not completely by himself, but you get it. And, and you're right, Infantino, he said, I have no, and this is, and this is the funny thing, as an, as an artist, you couldn't have asked for a better person to be art director. But as he goes further up the, the ladder, being the, uh, having the full reign of the place, that wasn't necessarily in his skill set. But uh, it, it, so understanding the the sales, understanding what was selling and, and, and why, that was a little bit beyond his ken. So he threw everything up against the wall to see what would stick, which was actually in so many ways a great, great result for comics fans. Ed, I'm sorry, I have to dispute a couple of things you're saying there. Mm -hmm. What I'm understanding from what the research I've done is that yeah. he was trained by plenty of people about sales. He said he was taken around. M might have been Donenfeld. He was good friends with one of them. I forget, forget the name. I think, I, mean, I think you're right. I think Don. Together. Yeah. So he was being trained in, in, a, in the same way Weisinger was training like Shooter. He would mm -hmm. take him out. He would show him things. He knew how to read sales reports. He knew how to do all that. He knew what, what worked. I mean, you know, I guess, you know, he was in charge, so he had to do it his way. But, he wasn't doing it totally out of ignorance. He did get, get some training. Now, you say something about throwing it against the wall. 
I mean, what else you gonna do? Marvel, you can hear the footsteps on Marvel. Yeah, you had to do yeah. something. And to be and fair, anyway, we could talk about how he got dismissed, but that has something to do with it. The competition with Marvel. When when uh, DC ran into issues with uh, where they where they raised the prices, this was in seventy or seventy one, something along those lines. Um, now see, and I and again, I'm going by what Infantino said. You know, he said that um, uh, he didn't find out about the the books going from thirty two to forty eight pages because that was the independent news dealers arrangement. They made that decision, and he said. Uh, he didn't find out about this until he left the company, but they were charging more for their brokerage fee. Everybody else in the industry was paying 10, but we were paying 12 and a half percent, which really, he said, cut into the profit margin. So I don't know. I don't know where the truth lies there. Obviously the deal was made, whether he was unaware of it, not a good thing, or whether he didn't um, understand it also not a good thing, but he's doing his best, I think, to explain why, um, DC uh, took the hit there because Marvel went to 20 cents and suddenly the Marvel sales went back up again and were um, going better than DC. So I don't know. I, I just think he was probably in over his head as as a publisher and maybe as editorial director to an extent, whereas he was really in his uh, element as the as the art director. That's all. And one has to ask, honestly, who <clears throat> pardon me, um, if anyone else could have done better. You know, DC had been stagnant for so long and Infantino, for better or for worse, is at least trying new things while the market is changing all around him. And I know some of his good ideas, you know, the expanding out the line to new genres. Some of that came from Donenfeld. Um, for example, the mm -hmm. um, venturing into uh, mystery and horror titles, uh, Infantino in an interview actually says that was Donenfeld's call. Mm -hmm. uh, it just ended up happening after he was gone. Um, but what I do think Infantino did that was massively important Um Moving towards this more visual idea that, again, began with Donenfeld as well. For one thing, I just, you know, and I'm saying this as somebody who is not primarily a reader of late Silver Age, early Bronze Age comics. Mm. It is amazing to me to read a comic book published in 1966 by DC versus a comic published in 1968 by DC. And visually, how different it is. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas before you had these very, very small, tight panels overloaded with text you know mm -hmm. you pick up something like um a batlash story or a jonah hex story and these huge panels often with no dialogue or narration whatsoever organically moving across a page is so powerful and inviting and it's crazy like if you look at the stuff kirby was doing at marvel at the exact same time you know, kirby who was very, very visual and marvel was you know one of its big things was how much more visual it was in dc Kirby's still a slave to incredibly tight generic panels, mm. whereas a lot of the DC artists were beginning to open up and do something that felt so much more natural and so much more uh, inviting, I guess would say. You could just step into a panel and feel a moment as opposed to watching a plot move by point by point. Well, and I think that mu must have reflected the freedom that Infantino realized he had to give to the artists. Sure. And, and you know... Uh... It's funny you mentioned that about the tightness of the panels because it, it comes to mind that when Kirby came over to do the Fourth World uh, books at DC, I can remember so many issues in which you turn the first page and suddenly you had this enormous double page spread. Yes. Um, Every issue. 
Kirby. <laughs> Issue. It, I loved you're, it. You're, yeah, it was unbelievable. It was great. And it was like you're looking at a, a comic that's 11 by 17, you know, in size because it was just so huge and so free. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're right. But look at the people that he got in and, and you see why he, you know, the people like Wrights. And of course, Adams had been sort of buried at DC. He was doing work for Boltonoff to begin with. I mean, his first work for DC was Bob Hope comic covers. Didn't he start with Kaniger? Or am I getting that wrong? What's that? Didn't Adams start under Kaniger? Uh, well, he was doing work for Boltonoff to begin with. He did covers for uh, Bob Hope there toward the end of the Bob Hope run. And then it was almost as if Weisinger said, oh, that looks interesting. And he did a lot of covers for action. He got started on World's Finest. He did a couple of stories for World's Finest. Mm -hmm. He did. I, no, I don't. I don't. He did a couple of. Um, I remember that he did a um, one of the very late Star Spangled War Dinosaur Island stories for. Uh, for Kaniger, that would have been for Kaniger, but no, he 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 started with um, covers for uh, Boltonoff. About he did a you know, Ed, Boltonoff give, did give, uh, Tomahawk. He did all those great covers for Tomahawk. Mm -hmm. You know, Ed, I would give Neil Adams the credit for why the art start or started getting better because he you know so when somebody comes in and they're like a tornado, now all mm -hmm. of a sudden you you have to up your game. You have to yes. say, okay, let me see what he's doing. I'm gonna oh, try yeah. to do the same. So yeah. and plus you're saying Infantino was, you know, he was a, he was an art guy. So he could see, okay, this is this is where we should be going. This is the direction we should be going. And everyone else that came in began to be influenced by him. Oh, you're you're so right. I mean, and again, I have to go back to my own experience reading these comics and, and going to the newsstand and seeing Adams was like it, it was like an atomic bomb going off. You looked and you said, Oh, what is yeah. this? And nope. uh and eventually making his way into Batman and remaking Batman and so forth and Green Arrow and all that sort of thing. Like it was it was it was a sea change. And you just said to yourself, oh, my God, this is this is what they should have been doing these last few years. And it it opened up um, uh, the world of comics like nothing ever had for me anyway. And I'm sure for other kids who were my age at that time, it was it was yeah. great. My big takeaway from this episode so far is now I really want to see Neil Adams work on Bob Hope. I just, oh. I need to see what that looks like. I, you yeah, know, I, ha I think I have an issue, Jeff. I might send it to you. <laughs> Please, I would love to see that. He did the cover. I don't know. He may have done an interior, too, on the last, very last issue of Bob Hope. But he did a few of the last few covers of Bob Hope. Which you know, I don't got Bob Hope. I think I, I have an issue he drew uh, of Jerry Lewis. Yeah. May, may very well, yeah. Because that was a... It's yeah. wild. <laughs> yeah. It's wild. And, and, I'll send uh, it to you, man. <laughs> it was it was unbelievable to see him on Batman. And of course, he wasn't going to do every issue. And it was an event when he showed up and uh, did a Batman story. Because to be honest with you, sometimes you didn't care about the story so much. You're just looking and going, look at that. You know, you're watching Batman go after Two-Face or the Joker or whoever. You know, all these shadows and, and that sort of thing. But um, beautiful. It, it was great stuff. And and then you said, oh, this this reminds me of the reprints of the 40s Batman that, you know, um, that I like to read in the annuals. He was he was scary, mysterious, et cetera, et cetera. It was great. And, and I submit to you that he might be the most imitated artist of all comic books time. I think everybody who grew up wanted to draw like Neil Adams and sure. they encouraged them to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And you saw a lot of people who were able to ape it a little bit. I mean, didn't Sienkiewicz go through a whole Neil Adams phase? Yes. Yes, he did. Yeah. <laughs> and For perhaps uh, too long. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like that. Actually, I liked it. I like that period. I wish it stayed there. No yeah. way. That's just me. 
<laughs> but I, I'm glad, you know, we, we jokingly bring up, uh, you know, doing things for like um, um, Bob Hope and for uh, Jerry. Uh, oh, my gosh, I'm losing his name now. Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis. Thank you so much. Freud the darling Levin. of France. Uh, <laughs> the darling of France. Come on. But I, I think it's important because, you know, it's important to remember, too, that DC at this time period was not just superheroes. And what's cool is you saw vast improvements in artwork across the entire line. Uh, when I was looking through just Mike's Amazing World, taking in the issues made during this time period, some of the best covers were done for like girls' love stories. Oh I'm my looking, gosh! Yes, I'm looking at the cover for girls' love stories number one thirty-seven right now, made by Rick Estrada. I don't even know who that is. Mm. My God, is that cover incredible? And like, I want to go and buy some of these comics now, just because the images are so compelling and make you want to grab and open that book. Oh, they were they were great, and they had. Um... And, you know, the, the great thing was there were so many new opportunities because all these new books were coming out. And, uh, you know, I think between 63 and maybe, I don't know, 1968, DC may have introduced maybe three or four number one issues. In other words, new comics, Metal Men, uh, uh, Captain Storm, uh, Scooter. And then, and, and, you, you know, so DC, as you, you guys said, they were just there. They were, they were reliable. They were there. You look at all the numbers of their comics, and with the exception of, say, Adam, Hawkman, so forth, the ones that had been started in the early 60s, Justice League, all their comics were, many of them were in the triple digits. So they'd been there since Dirt was new. And no problem. And then suddenly, every single month you'd see something new or hear about something new and as you said jeff they were from the, a full range they were all, weren't all just superheroes and frankly superheroes were you know they were going through one of those phases where they really weren't selling quite so much adam and hawkman green lantern is even canceled despite the you know the relevancy thing so you know three major uh, three major people in the justice league who aren't don't even have their own comics and uh but you had uh Humor like Angel and the Ape. You had Ditko come back with uh, Creeper and uh, Hawk and the Dove. Enemy Ace gets his own strip. I actually Fine. did the numbers, Ed, and um, yeah. there were over forty number one issues or um, or wow. new directions for runs that happened between sixty eight yeah. and seventy one. Over yeah. forty. Forty. So when you're when you're a comic fan, you're looking at this and going, "This is great." They're experimenting. They're trying something new. It it it, it was it was a it was wonderful. So it, was a, it was like a smorgasbord. Yeah. I hate to be that guy, but yeah, no, they did. No, you don't. You live for being that guy. Okay. Here it is. My, my opinion about it is, yeah, they tried a lot of new things, and a lot of those new things failed, and they didn't sell. That's why you only see short runs of uh, yeah. Anthro but, and, and, and but, whatever. But if you, and, if you, if you, um, if, if you look at them, many of them just – the plug was pulled. And I don't know, I really don't know to whom you should ascribe that, whether it was Infantino, whether it was the people above Infantino getting cold feet, you know, because it was very interesting. Um, the DC Showcase comic, which was the preview book, you know, Rip Hunter, The Flash, Adam, all these all these uh, series were previewed for at least three issues. And then sometimes they'd take a break and they'd come back for three more before they would green light a comic book. Well, uh, it, during this the, this period of time, you have um, Bing Bang Bang, you know, uh, three or four uh, showcase um, issues like uh, Creeper and Anthro uh, getting the green light right away. 
They, they went for one issue of Showcase and then suddenly, boom, they're on the stands. There's no way, they I don't think, that they could have seen the sales reports. They just said, let's go with it. And then the flip side of it was that, well, you've got to let a comic build an audience. And I don't think they did. I mean, Batlash is probably the best example of one that everyone loved. Everyone loved that. That I mean, yeah. that, that I, I never read a bad review of that. That was that was talk about out of left field. It was great to see a Western comic again, and that that artwork was, was just Nick Cardi. Yeah, yeah, it was wonderful. You look at the industry today, where we have like you know, um, Captain America Volume Twelve, Number One. You know, it's we're <laughs> constantly pumping out the same old crap over and over again. Yeah. I would have loved to have lived in an age where Brother Power the Geek. In the days of the mob, Spirit World, Wendy yeah. and Willie, Teen Beam, Angel and the <laughs> Ape, Sinister House of Secret Love. Like they were trying everything and it was so cool. Yeah. Even if some of it failed, how cool yeah. they yeah. went for it. And like even some of the, like, you know, we take it for granted now Dead Man, Hawk and Dove, yeah. you know, what weird ideas for the time period. At least it wasn't normal, same old stuff over and over again. They were, they oh, were innovating. Yeah. And, it, and if anything, that was such an impetus to me as a reader to get back get to the newsstand and see what are they going to do next what are they going to do right. next? it's well, funny I'm not, um oh god so fast there skippy uh, I, 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 you know <laughs> these books you're saying they were being thrown out okay i get that but they were failing they were failing but i but i tell you this you, you mentioned ed you mentioned something about the showcase title mm. and it's funny i think i i remember either hearing or reading an interview by it was infantino or somebody somebody in the know they said that when when Flash was first released, I think in 105, I'm not sure what 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 issue was, uh, yeah. showcase. They said that they didn't know it was a hit because it was the old time newsstand distribution. So mm -hmm. you wouldn't know what sold until like maybe three to six months later. Yeah. Right. So they said that when, once they got the reports that people were buying a Flash like crazy, that's when they went, "Oh, let's give him his own book." Right. But it, it was a weird system because you couldn't really know what was I know. selling and. And there was a lot of like uh um I was I was shocked because I knew activity with the with the with the newsstand dealers. I was shocked when when Showcase came out, I think like four issues in a row. It was Batlash, Anthro, Hawk and the Dove, maybe the three, and uh, Angel and the Eight, maybe an issue later. But whatever it was, suddenly you turn around the next month, they were on the stands. And um I think they were just, I'll tell you another, another uh, driving force be, behind a lot of that was uh, with the change in the newsstand distribution, you had, a, you had to make sure you had a lot of titles out there. So sure. both Marvel and DC, you know, were churning out titles, which I think, again, you know, the, the law of unintended consequences, they were, they started to put out reprint titles, which many people I know on the boards have commented. I mean, they were a vital part of my becoming a comic book fan because it was like you're getting um a history book so to speak you say oh wow right. so this is what it was like in the 40s or 50s oh i've heard of this justice society of america but now they're now they're reprinting a couple of them in, a, in an annual and those were events that might have led to the end of, of infantino's uh, um reign as the top guy because they said that he he admitted he said that right before he got i hope i'm not jumping the the order but right before he got fired yeah, he was called on the carpet. And they said, "Well, why are you releasing so many books out there? We're losing money. They lost like a million dollars." He said that Marvel at the same time lost like a million five. He said, "He says, well, Marvel's flooding the market, right? And we have to answer them exactly the way if they're putting they're trying to push us off the of the stands. Yeah. We have to come back with just as many books 
Right. So, so we could fight them in that sense. He yeah. says, "Well, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't agree with that, and they let them go." Mm-hmm. So no, I, that that wouldn't surprise me. But it, it also plays into the fact that, you know, they didn't really have uh, a strategy. You know, they they were great. They, he was great at tactics. Okay, do this, do this. But there was no long range strategy. I, I I'd agree. That's why I I mean that's where I think he reached the limits of his talents uh, being. Uh, the, well, the both, both companies lost money, so I'm thinking. They did. Where, where was this going? <laughs> you know, well, you know, it was like what? a fight to the finish, and both end up dead. So I don't know. <laughs> there was a real push at the time uh, for the newsstand distributors. Well, they, you know, and and the um, and the um, I'm calling them candy stores. You know, the guys at the candy stores who had newsstands. <laughs> uh, they were also now getting pushed off by a lot of the girly books, which made a lot more money. And uh, if you read some of what they say, they say, this is great because I don't have kids hanging around reading the comic books because they can't stay at, at that at the adult section of the uh, of the magazine. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need them. And uh, so solved. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so all of a sudden, you, you know, th- those people wanted the space on the racks and more than happy to give them over if, if you're the, the newsstand distributor or the, or the news dealer. So it was. Uh, I, you're right. It was a it was a kind of a dog eat dog situation. But for the fan, at least, oh, it was the best. It was yeah. just unbelievable. <laughs> that oh, was a golden age. You're right. I didn't know just a society. I didn't know any of those characters oh. until I opened up a twenty five cent mo- a, a DC book, and the backup was something I never seen before. It was yeah. great. Yeah. I mean, as as a kid reading the comics, then I thought that was a great bargain. You know, yeah. you, you knew prices had to go up. Uh, eventually, you know, but uh, to me, you were getting something for it at least. There, there were many comics that I bought just for the reprints. You know, yeah. I was. It was all new. It was all new to me. Exactly. It wasn't and like that's I was the key. Ripped off. There was no back issue market back then. There were no trade paperbacks. If you wanted <laughs> to see where it came from before, reprints were your only opportunity. The the great thing about comics then, even at twenty five cents, you weren't spending a huge percentage of whatever you were making by the hour, and you could just say, well, I'll give this a shot. I'll give this one a chance. And I've never read mm-hmm. a, cave, a, a book about a, you know, a cave boy. And I've never seen this guy, Howie Post. But, you know, mm-hmm. Anthro was a, a charming little title. It was Speak- great. Speaking of value, um, it's actually interesting. Infantino's um, move to hiring artists as editors and creating these much more visually arranged comic books. I don't know if this was ever an intended consequence, but one thing that happened for sure George, you and I were discussing um, in a recent conversation that some of our Patreon extra conversation bits people can see, the idea that when you opened um, an early 60s comic book, it could take you 30 minutes to read that thing because Mm. it was so dense. You had those small panels, all that writing. You got so much story. Mm -hmm. And you read these comics with these, you know, much more expansive panels and less dialogue, and they read fast, so fast that, like, you could buy a 15 cent comic before and it would last you a long time that you that, that could occupy an entire afternoon yes and these would go by in 15 minutes flat you need to buy more so in a way <laughs> that might have actually it should have at least helped dc sales of wow you know i bought four books last week and it lasted me two hours i gotta buy eight books this week <laughs> yeah i'll tell yeah. you I didn't see the, the the big thing. They said, well, you know, Marvel's comic books were 20 cents and DC's was 25 and that hurt DC. I'm like, but you did get the extra pages. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't like, it wasn't like you, there was 20 pages for 25 cents and 20 pages for 20 cents. You were getting like 48 pages and stuff you'd never seen before. 
So I, I I thought it was worth it. Oh, it was it was great. And uh, you know you know as I said you know if you, if you're a young comics fan you couldn't have asked for a better time to be picking up books all over the place. And once again those covers like it almost didn't even matter what was inside called to you it, it made people who maybe wouldn't have picked up books before want to try them just because they were enticing and one thing we haven't talked about yet that i think is really important is that infantino um replaced irish snap with gasper saladino oh. for doing the lettering on the covers and holy god did that make a difference yes yes so some I of the best title covers logos you'll ever see they were great and and, and saladino wasn't bad but you even as a, a casual comics fan or as an uninformed fan, I didn't know who Irish Schnapp, uh, Schnapp was at that time, but you noticed the drop off immediately. I mean, he, even the ads that Irish Schnapp designed and lettered were beautiful. You know, you, you, I look forward to seeing the ads for the new comics. Oh, you were a Schnapp fan. I'm sorry. I misunderstood that. Oh, no, no. I loved oh, him. Oh, Snap. Wow. I thought Saladino <laughs> was so much better. Oh, no, I, I thought to me, it, it, I said, oh, we're getting real jazzy and snazzy and modern and they're trying to, you know, do 60s lettering and so forth. No, 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 no. Secret Six, love that. I would talk about a great cover, by the way, the, the first Secret Six. How can you resist that if you're a kid? See, Saladino is the one where like there are times that the the title, the logo of it actually makes me pay attention more than the art itself. Hmm. I think you're gonna to have to post some pictures and examples on the forum because I don't know what you guys are talking about. I don't care about the lettering. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, no. Give me the art. Who cares about the lettering? No, logos were big to me, and I even noticed coloring on the logos. Some look better than others. Yeah. Some combinations of them, you know. I tell you what, you know, like again, you know, th these books, the younger people don't realize what it was to grow up in that era because th that really kind of was like the golden age. That was the first time they were reprinting books from way back. Oh, before that, they weren't, right? Before the 60s, you never saw oh. reprinting anything. The annuals. Maybe in a, in a giant size like Superman, they will give you older stories, but this was like on a regular basis. Every yes. month you open up the back of a book and you go, wow, look at this, you know. Yeah. Well, those. Those annual and, and you know, that's those reprint books were cheap. That was the thing. They didn't pay anybody any rights at that point. So they were yeah. just going back through the files they'd slap on and they didn't often have to even slap on a new cover. You yeah, know, that's they, right. And, and, and but you know, Marvel, they were reprinting their whole line that was only not even 10 years old. I actually heard from an interview this morning. He said Infantino said that he had to flood the market because Marvel was doing it. And he says, yes. and if he didn't do it, they get pushed out of the, the newsstands. That's, that's right. So, and again, you know, uh, yeah, it cost them money, but it was going to, I guess they figured if this was something they had to do in order to not get swallowed up by, by. Yeah, uh, that's what they were doing. I mean, it had the cost because both, both companies lost money, but I yeah. mean, also just comics in general were tanking. Yes. Until yeah. until Star Wars came along, with Marvel right. published Star Wars, Shooter says it saved Marvel. And I would assume that for DC and Marvel too, merchandising then became what saved them. I wonder. I always thought the merchandise was had always been around, but just not to the I, extent. I don't, I don't know. But I will say this though, because over the years, every who read Wonder Woman in the 1960s, I certainly didn't. I might buy, I might pick up an occasional issue just if I had 12 cents lying around, but really it had no yeah. interest for me whatsoever. It was always crazy and poorly done, but they published it year after year because they did not want to lose the rights to it. And they, they were merchandising, not to the extent that they are today, but you know, 
for instance, they had the Superman TV show, they had the Superman um, Ben Cooper Halloween costume or whatever, and Wonder Woman as well. So they 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 lost money on the book itself, but the mm. contracts for the merchandising. Infantino said that these comic books weren't making any money at all. That's why the, the, the newsstands didn't really like them. Right. Right. He said, like you said, the girly mags, yeah. the money makers. Yeah. But I mean, how much? What's the price point? I mean, twelve cents. I mean, how I know. much are you really making? You oh. know, yeah. uh, who are you? How are you pay people for twelve if cents? You're making a, book? a penny. And plus, remember, even then, the newsstand guys were getting ripped. Were ripping them off because yeah. remember, you could you could send back um, just the top part of the cover. You could send back the logo. Mm -hmm. And I can remember as a kid at flea markets and and you know there, there would be. Um, uh, at one of the candy stores where I used where, where I used to go, Maxie's, Maxie would have a few few of them that were torn. You know, you get them for a nickel. So oh, Maxie yeah. had gotten the, you know, Maxie had <laughs> them back. Say, oh, didn't sell this one <laughs> until I will. Yeah, it was, it was a ripoff. You know, <laughs> you know, so honest. It was it was very sketchy. And as I said, you know, the mob was involved in a lot of this newsstand stuff. Kinney was supposedly a mob company. So you know, you weren't exactly dealing with uh, Norman Vincent yeah. Peale or somebody like that. But you don't even have to be a mob member just to take advantage of somebody. On oh, the no. Because no. it really was the honor system. Oh, without a doubt. You guys haven't mentioned the big, the biggest development, him bringing Jack Kirby into, into D.C. What do, you, what do you say about that, Ed? I loved it, of course. As a kid, I thought, oh, this was the biggest news I'd ever seen. This, this was like, uh, oh, I don't know, the Yankees. Well, I should, I'm, I'm actually going to the real world. The Red Sox <laughs> selling Babe Ruth. <laughs> it's like the Yankees getting Reggie Jackson. Yeah, that's what yeah, it, was. It, was, it was. It was like holy this, crap! This shook the whole the whole thing apart because you just took for granted that Kirby was over there, and then suddenly he's coming to this side of the street. You didn't know what he was going to do, and the fact that he wound up on Jimmy Olsen. Holy crap! I don't, <laughs> I don't even think Jimmy Olsen's mother bought Jimmy Olsen, and, and uh, suddenly he's and, and again we I said it before. You know, you open those pages and you just wow. It's like you're walloped. I loved all those. Yeah. I didn't always know where the hell they were going, but it was so different and, and, and unique. And the writing was a weak point, but it was just so amazing visually. Well, you know, I'm not going to say who he needed, but, you know, <laughs> no. the, it, the last name rhymes with B. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, the concepts are great. You know, it's just uh, the whole this dark side thing and. Mr. Uh, Miracle, all that stuff, C C uh, Commandy. I mean, I know Commandy was a ripoff of Planet of the Apes, but still, well, yeah. we went along with it. The, 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 actually, the original concept for Commandy began before Planet of the Apes even happened. It was just then Kirby mm -hmm. went back to when he went to DC. Mm -hmm. But um, mm -hmm. I, I would say, like in terms of the writing, though, and it's 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 dangerous lumping Kirby into any category. I recognize that. But I would say that I think one thing that happened under Infantino at DC, at least with the stronger artists and the stronger um, art, artistic editors, was that a lot of times the writing actually didn't matter. And I say this as somebody who loves writing first and foremost mm -hmm. as a comic fan. Sometimes the images and the basic plot told enough of the story that you can just stop reading the words and scan the pages and know exactly what's happening anyway. And it never really bothered me that Kirby's actual, you know, scripting wasn't the strongest because man do those images tell stories and his plots were so out there and so incredible that it it didn't matter to me no and i have to agree with you because i never maybe a couple of times you'd stop you go back and read something you say really did someone actually say that but, 
but they were they were just like action movies before there really were action movies. Yes. And so, you know, you're just looking in, and the poses and the concepts and the costumes and those, as I said before, those two page spreads just kill you. It was just great. I, I can remember buying New Gods one and saying, oh, man, this is going to be here for a long time, I hope. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was fantastic stuff. But he did need, you know, he did need help, help with the dialogue. Some of that <laughs> dialogue was pretty painful. Come on. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but you know I mean, what? He's a legend. He's the best. I'm just That's saying. Some of the dialogue was like. No, no, but you got you to gotta give the guy some uh, leeway, so to speak, because you're opening a book and you say, there's more in this comic book than I've read in a full run of oh, some yeah. other stuff. Well, I mean, well, let me ask you this then. Do you really think his books failed or what? Because there's some rumor that because of the distribution shenanigans, mm -hmm. nobody really knew if those books were, were succeeding or not. But I know yeah. that was the biggest thing like in D.C. So that the, the idea that they were like not selling. It was a mystery to me as a reader because it seemed like they were just moving along and, and that he was just in charge and in control and D.C. was pushing the hell out of them. And then they suddenly, it was as if they were just pushed off to the side and disappeared. I think the demon and Kamandi probably, Kamandi probably lasted longest. And, um, and the demon didn't, I think a few other people actually finished up Kamandi. They had other artists on it. Yeah. Yeah. After issue 33, somebody else took over. It lasted yeah. until issue 59. And then, and then it was like, I, I always felt, I, I felt terrible about it, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I empathize with Kirby. I said, now he's got to sort of go back to Marvel and what's he going to do there? And I, I honestly, to be honest, I never really followed his his work at Marvel after that. I know a lot of folks have read it and like it, but it just didn't uh, it it didn't compel me to go over there and and, and read that. I and I I felt I felt terrible because I thought I was getting cheated as a reader, and you knew that you they were, and you're getting and <laughs> and years a few years later, you know you know they're going to bring them back uh, with somebody else doing it and. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I did hear that when Kirby first introduced those characters, he, he intended for the, in other words, he healed the first six issues and then somebody else would take over. Mm. He didn't, it, the plan wasn't for him to do every single book, every part of every single book. And that's oh. what they ended up doing. But they were all started by monthly. So, you know, one book would be this month, the next book would be yeah. the next month. But I think he intended for other people to take over oh. once he introduced the concepts. I don't know if he got lied to, because hmm. I mean he he became disillusioned after a while, and that's why he, he came back to Marvel. I can't imagine anybody in the comic book business lying to an employee. <laughs> that never happens. Ah, no, no, no. Part <laughs> of the problem. Your, put that from your head. Part of the problem too <laughs> that might help to explain why Kirby was essentially shown the door is, as much as we give Infantino credit for trying to age up the target demographic looking mm -hmm. at older people, um, we do have uh, actual quotes from him from um, a New York Times Magazine article he did that um, in 1971, essentially, the way that he was measuring whether or not his books were working was he was interviewing groups of kids around the country. And he doesn't say what age group he means by that, but when we're talking kids, I would imagine the Kirbyverse was aimed more at, you know, your college age people, you know, folks who had grown up on the early Marvel, had gotten older and were looking at something bigger. And if you're yeah. asking, you know, 10 and 12 year olds, what do you think of Kamandi? You know, they, they, they might just be like, what the frick is that? that that's, yeah. that's not Batman. Yeah. Real sophisticated demographic study. Right. Exactly. I mean, you know, that was the best they had at that point beyond gorilla covers. But 
if all mm-hmm. you're looking for is what kids think, then a, a comic that's not targeted towards kids is going to fail in your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it might have been something just as simple as money. Maybe they were just paying them too much and they said, look, we're losing money anyway. Let's just cut them mm-hmm. loose. Well, I'm sure it was expensive to bring them over and to keep them. No doubt about oh, yeah. that. Got, uh, had- you know, people people paint Kirby as such the victim. and But I submit to you, he had to have been the highest paid artist year after year. It, that might have been it also. Maybe the other artists were jealous or something like that. It, it might have been a, but I'm saying a work he, culture he's issue. Like, he's, the top, he's the top player. You're paying him the top. It might have even been as simple as the fact that if you look at all the, we haven't even talked yet about the fact that uh, Infantino um, ordered basically the complete resets, uh, thematically at least, on all the major characters, you know, Wonder Woman, Superman, Batman. Um, those were all moves towards being more realistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I have a quote from Infantino. This is again from that New York Times Magazine, May 1971 interview. Where he says, <laughs> um, the push for relevance was a last-ditch effort of keeping the superhero alive. Green Lantern was dying, he said. The whole superhero line was dying. We started interviewing groups of kids around the country, and the one thing they kept repeating, they wanted to know the truth. Suddenly the light bulb goes on. So Superman gets significantly depowered. Wonder Woman gets depowered. Batman gets more street level. And then you've got Kirby, you know, who's on this whole other plane of imaginative (laughs) existence. And it just might have been like, this does not fit what we're going for anymore. It's it's sad, really, because the the whole... To me, anyway, one of the benefits of this time that Infantino, quote unquote, took over was that you had all kinds of experimentation being done. In other words, if you were a DC reader, you didn't have to necessarily enjoy their whole line. You could pick and choose and there was stuff you liked for you and there was stuff that your friend liked. And so the fact that Kirby was on a whole different plane, to me, anyway, as a as a reader, was great. That was that was fine. That was great for me. They had more experimentation and more titles coming out of everywhere and everything to choose from. You know, if you didn't want to read Justice League, you could read Swamp Thing, you know, mm-hmm. or you could read House of Mystery or whatever, or, or Jerry Lewis or yeah. whatever, whatever was happening out there. You know, you didn't have to buy the whole line. To me, that, that those years are as close as what the 1940s must have been like when you see those pictures of old newsstands with dozens and dozens of comic books, all different genres. And you just say, wow, that must have been great. And this is as close as it ever came, at least for me. I, I never saw such. Now, again, today there must be a great deal of variety, and I'm taking myself out of that part of the discussion because I don't I don't buy, I don't go, I, I, don't, I don't follow it. But uh, and and they and even if I did, they'd all cost close to ten dollars anyway. So, Chris, <laughs> you're not missing anything. The, old, the comic books these days are we re- all rehashing all old plot yeah. lines. It's well, yeah. the, new plot the DC line and Marvel there. comics are not all comics, yeah. just, just I mean, DC and Marvel. The big, the big two. They, yeah. they won't take a chance. They, everything is a brand new. Galactus is attacking her for the 89th time. You know, you, you're getting the same <laughs> stuff over and over again. And, and that's so, where DC was in 1966 as well. And I, I think that, you know, there's Infantino for you. If he was nothing else, he broke up the logjam. Mm-hmm. Um, even just like, you know, when he appointed all these artists as editors, he was breaking up the existing fiefdoms. And like, for example, I, I don't know if there was ever an intentional agenda behind it, but like, you know, your mainstay writers like Bill Finger, Otto Binder, and Gardner Fox, you just don't see them getting gigs anymore once this happens. It's it's new voices and new approaches. And what had been done forever and ever and ever naturally goes away because there's new, younger, energetic voices directing where DC's going. And remember, too, those were the guys who were uh, kind of being, quote-unquote, militant and saying, 
we, we'd like a little bit more protection and maybe um, a, a higher a higher rate. They were starting. I think they were starting to ask about um, um, retaining some of the rights to their material. They were also, but they wanted a health plan and so forth, and that was going nowhere. And so those guys, you know, they were all gone. And you're right; they were replaced by uh, Gardner Fox. I think his last story for Justice League was about 65 or 66 in the run. He had done the whole thing, and then yeah. suddenly it was Denny O'Neill. And I'm never and, going to feel great about Bill Finger being shown the door. You know, that that's never going to sit exactly not. right with me. But, no. at, you know, at the same time, new voices, new energy, new directions, that at least is a positive thing. Yeah. And who knows that that those guys couldn't have benefited from a different kind of editor than they were used to. An artist, yeah. you know, an, an editor with an artistic side to to his um, to his approach so that. You know, because I think a lot of cases they were just said, yep, turn in another story, turn in another story. You know the formula, you know the routine. And uh, and that's what they did. Uh, because, and because DC was satisfied with, with pretty much the, you know, the whatever you want to call it, run of the mill, the usual, what's right. been selling. Don't 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 tip over the apple cart, so to speak. And I think I, I think to be fair too, I think Don Field was beginning to implement a lot of change himself. I think some things that continued under Infantino's watch. Um, I know, for example, like I don't. We haven't talked yet about um, the infamous Teen Titans number twenty, um, with Wolfman and Wine involved in that one. Uh, Ween, I keep calling him Wine, but um, that was that was Donafield pushing for that push, push the edge, push the boundaries, go somewhere new, shake things up. I, I can't help but wonder if he would have changed Wonder Woman and Batman and Superman too. And we know that he was emphasizing covers and looking for art mm -hmm. being more important. And sure. it, it, it's it's possible. I mean, if he had stayed. Yeah, it, yeah, certainly that. In, in Infantino, when you you know, in his interviews, he's always like, um, it wasn't like he had this this brilliant, passionate climb to become, you know, artistic editor and then editor, you know, in, right. in, in um, you know, publisher. He's always sort of like, then they offer me this, and I was like, sure. And they offered me this, and I was like, okay. Then they said, do this, and I said, fine. It was yeah. kind of like yeah. Don and Field laid it out for him, and Infantino just sort of took it to the next logical level and had great yes. people keeping under him. Jeff, Teen Titans 20, what happened in that book? You act like we should know what that book is. Oh, let's do it. Okay. So Teen <laughs> Titans number 20 was um, the storyline where um, it, this is um, Marv Wolfman and Len Wein had just taken over the book. Um, they just pried it away from Bob Haney um, after it had gotten very repetitive and dry. And they were going to introduce um, DC's first black superhero. And essentially oh. what it was was there was um, there was a black a gang of teens who is being coerced by um, some white guy to use their rage um, for, for criminal purposes. And this, this um, hero who was masked for most of the issue was trying to convince these black kids that their anger was being misdirected and that the, the man was against them and they needed to realize what was really happening. And he was going to unmask at the end and be this, you know, black guy. It was going to be this huge deal. And um, in uh, uh, Don and Field approved it. It was all set to go. They they wrote it. Um, Cardi penciled it. It was inked. And um, that was right when um, Infantino took over um, and Donnefield left. And Infantino takes one look at the finished product and goes, this is crap. We're not publishing this. Mm. And, and just tosses it away. And there, there's conflicting information on what happened um, and why that occurred. Um, I think it's Len Wein who um, claimed that um, Infantino had said, this will never play in the South. Um, whereas Infantino said it was just a crappy story. And Wolfman concedes it was a crappy story. Mm. But 
they also said that Donafield had said, keep pushing, you know, this is great, we need this, change it up. And um, so at least there was an attempt to be progressive and more real and to break the mold before Infantino was even in charge. And Infantino got cold feet. Yeah, and, and the real sad byproduct of that is um, not that the story was 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 canceled. And by the way, it was Neil Adams did a late night, all night long rewrite to make that story finally able to go to press with Cardi's art. And it was it's a terrible story what finally got printed. Maybe it's just a different time. He, he was afraid, you know, people, the society wasn't ready for it yet. Well, sure. Yeah. And you know what? And honestly, even if his logic really had been, it won't play in the South. Um, while that's sad and unfortunate and a little cowardly, that's not the real tragedy. What bothers me is Wolfman and Wayne were blacklisted afterwards. They could not work for DC after that. They did come back to DC and and, yeah. and, and contribute a lot of good things. Right. Sure. After they'd proven themselves at Marvel and become, you know, very attractive talent there, sure. Did they, Jeff, did they go right over to uh, Marvel and were, were hired pretty quickly, do you know? There was an in-between phase and um, what actually happened, um, God, I'm going to forget the name. Uh, whoever was editing Teen Titans at the time, I'm, I'm blanking on who that was. Uh, was it wasn't like, still George Cashton, was it? No, it was not. Um, he was in um, California at that point working on animation. Oh, I um, think Giordano eventually had it, it right? It was Giordano, thank you. And what Giordano was doing was he was quietly um, hiring them on the side to mm. be consultants on stories. Mm. So, like, for example, um, when you get um, Wonder Girl's origin, right. that came from Wolfman and Ween, but shh, you know, we didn't really hire them. It was, it was, they were getting bits and pieces and scraps here and there until they were finally able to make the move over to Marvel. Hmm. Interesting. So I think we've, we've already covered the, um, the price war that happened with, uh, with Marvel and jumping to 25 cents and how that ultimately bit them in the butt. Um, hmm. and, and we talked a bit about Infantino getting fired. Um, what's left in Infantino's legacy that we need to discuss? I would just submit that, um, that was, and, and it wasn't just Infantino, but the whole industry was changing, but he was certainly a driver at, at DC. If, you know, I'm not going to get into when the Bronze Age began or whatever, but certainly more realism in comics. The the the, the whole horror phase that came in um, 70, 71, because they relaxed the uh, the comics code. Mm -hmm. And so, and and everything seemed to be horror at that time. Everything was weird, weird Western, weird war. Yeah, we we did a we did a podcast about that, and I think like twenty people listened to it. That's not bad. <laughs> twenty one. Thank you. And yeah, I, uh, I loved how they moved. They they started blending genres too. You had um, you know, in, in addition to all their straight horror titles, you also had like you know weird war stories, uh, weird mm -hmm. Western tales, Sister yeah. House of Secret Love, Dark Mansion of Forbidden Love. Like yeah. they blended horror with everything else. It was amazing. Yeah, they did. And of course, you know, horror, it was like George was saying about Superman being on the cover. Horror made it into even the superhero titles. Teen Titans. Yeah. yeah. That was a great one. Flash had, <laughs> Flash had, you know, ghosts on the cover and so forth. So, But uh, I also think that, uh, well, of course, we said it. There were so many new talented people who came in who were comics fans to begin with. And for the most part, I think that was that was a benefit for the industry and for the, for comics. Sure. Which, um, you know, and as you said previously, I guess, I guess to a certain extent, some of the early golden age guys grew up reading comics or were very young when they got into comics and had, had been reading them for a couple of years, but these, the Roy Thomases and the um, Wolfmans and the Weens and, and uh, people like that, they had grown up 
reading comics from DC and Marvel both. And yes. now suddenly they had their chance to get into the, the toy room and play with them a little bit. <laughs> and I, I think George made the point earlier um, that most of what happened under Infantino ultimately got undone. You know, that it was an experiment that didn't last. Mm -hmm. But at least bringing in some of that new talent and new voices and bringing in some new readers. Yeah, DC ends up having the implosion, you know, only shortly after all of this. But as we acknowledge, this was such a creative time where so many new things were changed and tried that had never been done before. And that we're seeing a lot less experimentation today. If you could take any one specific property or idea or concept from Infantino's time and bring it into modern day comics, other than just expand the line in general, which is, you know, a very general concept. Is there one title or or one concept or one move he made that you'd like to see happen again in comics today? I always, well, I, I certainly have a, a soft spot for Bat Lash, but that's because that may also be because I, I love Westerns. But, that was actually where I was going to go to it, was that I, George and I were recently lamenting, again, in one of our conversations that'll be available to Patreon soon, that mm -hmm. it's sad that superheroes have become synonymous with the comic book industry. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, I love that DC wasn't just doing Westerns. They were doing Westerns with a twist. Mm -hmm. you know, Jonah Hex was such an anti-hero. He was so alive. It, it, it almost didn't matter what genre he was in. And Batlash was just such a grinning son of a bitch. Oh. <laughs> they, were, they were so <laughs> fun and so different from what had been do done before. And they were, I never read Fire Hair. Um, I, I need to check that one out. But that it was just, uh, you know, Kubert did it three issues in Showcase. And then it popped up occasionally just randomly you know it, and it's too bad because that was in a sense ahead of its time too yeah but doing westerns and not just repeating what had been done but taking them in new directions um oh, yeah. i would love to see them do that again yeah i would i would love to see a bat lash i'll tell you what i i think would be it it, it uh, unfortunately folded the tent under infantino but uh dick giordano took it out with a with a with a, a flare so to speak and that was the the blackhawk series i mean that had been printed since what like 41 mm -hmm. in one title or another and uh it was it was doomed it was they, they went through that junk heap heroes period and it was just horrible and stupid it outlived it <laughs> but then there were two more issues that had to be done and uh giordano brought in wolfman and he found it that's the story he found a script in the desk of george cashton that Wolfman had written as a kid, young guy, and um, they refashioned it. They used his idea. I forget. Now, it might have even been Haney. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. But Pat Boyette did the last couple of issues, which brought back the old The Black Knights, brought back Nazis. They were just two really well-told stories. Like, you, I, even, uh, you know, reading these as a kid, you're saying, this is like reading a, a, a great story. And there's always been rumors that um, Spielberg was going to bring back a Black Hawk movie. But uh, they've they've amounted to nothing. But uh, I would have loved to have seen that continue in that Black Knights phase under Infantino. But Batlash definitely, definitely. And uh, I wonder if something silly like uh, Inferior Five would work as a television show today, mm -hmm. mocking all these superheroes. <laughs> that was a fun were, book. They, it was. It was very clever. It. it uh, that, I don't know if this is uh, Infantino's era, but I like Angel and the Ape also. Is that what you bring back, George? <laughs> no. <laughs> Actually, the, the book I really like, and it's a guilty pleasure, and I, I, I like it for all the wrong reasons, is the Wonder Woman run where she was like Diana Rigg. Oh, the I Ching oh, thing? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, she lost her powers. She became a, a kung fu expert in 20 minutes. And that fuck <laughs> cry was the best. And, oh, I, and I tell you, Sakowski did a nice job with that art. Isn't that something? Yeah, he was perfectly suited for that. I you love know. that run. I, I actually really bought well. the, the, the reprints of that. Yeah, that's a good one, too. And that, would, that would made it. That would have made a great uh, series or, or a great movie. Yeah. And I, I got to say, too, I, I would love to have seen where the hell Brother Power the Geek would have gone. Uh, <laughs> reading two issues is it. <laughs> it's, it's, it was not I'm taking my headphones off right now <laughs> I, that, that series like across two issues and like four stories changed so many times i had no idea where it was headed that 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 was first of all i loved it and i finally found a copy of number two <laughs> and read it and no one no one else has a copy of number three except me and dan bailey but, <laughs> but uh it always seemed to me, looking back on it when I was older, that it should have been narrated by Jack Webb. <laughs> it, it, was, it was like the dragnet version of hippie dub. It was just so weird. And and, and there's got to be room for that kind of weirdness. Yes. It, it was it was just so so and, and that would make a that would make a great show today or a great movie. Oh my god. I be, you know, it would be it would be great as a really dark and twisted version of it. Yes. I think I'm that was sure. Sell. I'm not sure you guys know what the definition of great is because, <laughs> huh? We're talking about possibility here, George. Possibility. <laughs> so, you know, here's, here's the one thing I can't figure out with all the expanding of, of into different genres that uh, they did under Infantino. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, they even did the three mouseketeers, you know, trying funny animals out one more time. Yeah. How, how the hell did it take them until 1973? To hit sword and sorcery. Well, they, they were they were behind the eight ball because uh, it was it was Roy Thomas who brought Conan out in seventy after right. much persuading of Stan Lee, and then suddenly you know, the sword hit the fan, and they and they went and and that sword of sorcery was they had some great covers on that, and it was again, you know, aborted <laughs> so to speak. It was just it, um, and then Chaikin did Iron Wolf, which was similar in some ways to the sword and sorcery. Great stuff, but. Yeah, they, they never went anywhere. Then they tried to do Beowulf. Yeah. After Infantino or maybe at the very end. And that was really, <laughs> that that didn't really well, go anywhere. Well, they had a title that I kind of liked. It was called Starfire. It was a woman like mm -hmm. set in a, like a sword and sorcery, but also set like in space, I think. Yes. I'm yeah, it was. Sure. It was yeah. wild, but I kind of, you know, I like that, that book. That was uh, uh, probably a victim of the DC implosion in 78, if I'm not mistaken. A yeah, of, a lot of things got canceled. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, Secret Six was another one that was fun. That could oh, yeah. Good one. I, I like the revival they did um, during Action Comics Weekly in the 80s. Was it good? It was. Enjoyable. By Action Comics Weekly standards, it was very good. If that means anything. <laughs> oh, you know, I, I have to stand corrected. DC did do a sword and sorcery roughly around the same time. Bernie Wrightson and Grandinetti, he did some of the art on the Nightmaster strip in Showcase. Oh, when was that? That was in the late, in um, the 80s, if you will, uh, numbering Showcase. And uh, it was uh, his name, he was a rock musician, I think, and his name was Jim Rook. <laughs> and he's more or less transported somehow to uh, another dimension and uh he had to become a sword and sorcery kind of a, a of a hero and wrightson did oh my memory i think he did the cover no maybe kubert did a couple of the covers too but 
um, Wrightson and Grandinetti did the art on those stories. And they were, it, again, it was one of those things where you said, let's go, let's do this some more. It never went anywhere else though, unfortunately. That's fascinating. Well, you know, that's the, around yeah. the same time, Warren had a, a, a property called The Rook. Right. It was a guy who traveled through time. Yeah. I, yeah I, that, may, that may have been a little nod to him. That came out a few years later. You're right. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. Yeah. George, what were you saying? I was going to say that I, I always thought the answer to Conan that really stuck that DC had was Warlord. Yeah. I know that came a little later. Mm. It might have been the beginning mm -hmm. of the 80s. I, I'm not really sure. But yeah. I, but I know that book was, a you know, that was quite a good book. It had a like, long run. Yeah, I, I just it didn't did. understand why it took them so long when Conan was selling so well right out the gate that yeah. it took them so long to adapt. My last mm -hmm. thing I don't understand, um, because... DC got really into fighting Marvel on the, uh, the larger size books. Um, mm. You know, they, they did their treasury editions. Mm. They did their hundred pagers. They did their uh, Superman and Batman family books. Yet when Marvel was putting out the Curtis magazines left and right, mm. DC had Spirit World in the Days of the Mob, and that was it. Yeah, and they were both Kirby projects. So Right. It, and I know that Kirby was asked to do that specifically to take up that space in the racks, but where was mm. DC's magazine game beyond that? Yeah, nowhere. Marvel did pretty well with those, I would think. They had a ton of those titles, oh, didn't yeah. they? And it was some of their best stuff, too. Like, yeah. I mean, honestly, Marvel magazines in the early 70s is some of their best writing and some of their best art. Yeah, yeah. I Yeah, I used to always pick those up, as a matter of fact. And, yeah. you know, because they were on the magazine rack and they cost more, that was a, it was a little bit better split with the dealer and distributor. And, you know, technically... Yeah, but also, remember, you can see boobies if you open those books. <laughs> I was going to say, maybe it goes back to your, your point earlier about how the girly mags were more desirable to the uh, the store owners. That's why, right. That's exactly why fill that with Marvel and DC magazines. Maybe they saw it as futile. Well, and you know, Marvel made the first step in into that market to begin with. With uh, what was it called? Uh, oh, I don't know. Was it called the Spider Man Spectacular or the Spectacular Spider Man? Spectacular Spider Man. Yep. And uh, that was two issues. And I can remember when that came out. That was in the summer around this time. What was it 68 ish, 67, something like that? Oh, that was a big yeah. deal. We all wanted that. It was 30. And you know, I heard that it sold, but the people thought it didn't. Again, oh. a newsstand thinking that the, the money, the, the, the stats came out later. And it oh. turns out it was a tremendous big hit. Yeah. And they, they, they blew it. You know, they could have kept it going, but, you know, yeah. it, it's what happens. I, like so many of these, you wonder how do these industries survive when so much of the information they get or or they, they couldn't get the information and the information they get is, is confusing or late or, you know, not definitive. It's By interviewing adolescents around the country. What's you know, that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. you know, here's here's some candy. What do you think about Green Lantern? <laughs> if you say yes, you get two pieces. You can say no, you get one. <laughs> Oh, but but even today, you know, they they the system is direct direct marketing. You 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 mm -hmm. send it to a, the comic shop, but even that's a gamble because let's say something comes out, the person that runs the comic shop is going to order, let's say a hundred thousand, and but he doesn't know if the hundred thousand are going to sell. No. So you know maybe the next one they usually cut it by fifty percent to the second issue. So which even is, that's a gamble. Which is why there are long boxes full of. Damage control comics <laughs> for a nickel, right? It also brings us back to the point that we we have an industry today that is far more concerned with trying to tell people what they want than by mm. trying to anticipate what they want. Mm. And whether or not that's working is certainly debatable. 
But that's what was so special about this time period was watching DC and Marvel flailing around, trying everything to make the readers happy. And it's, it's such a treat. It, it really was. And, and, and again, um, experiencing it when Marvel expanded the line and, and they had more, uh, and they had more titles coming out, the distribution improved and that opened up another whole world to me as a comics reader. And I was, I, I was crazy about that too. It was, it was wonderful to see them all and, and, and you get reintroduced to it, you know, and, or, or introduced to it. And it, it was, it was just, a, it was a lot of fun to be a comics reader at those, in those years. Absolutely. So, and it's, so what it's are you fun. saying? It, is that fun now? <laughs> it's not. You don't want to buy another variant cover? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I'm, I'm haunting the newsstand now looking for Anthro number eight. So if if you'd see it anyway, it's going to be a while, man. Sorry. If, <laughs> if, if only DC would reset their universe and start from scratch, that certainly would fix everything. You know, yeah, that. Well, <laughs> wait a minute. Give me an hour. <laughs> it's, right, it's, right, it's right next to that. Uh, the brother geek number three that you're looking for. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we should probably wrap up here. I'm thinking, gentlemen, does that work for you guys? It does indeed. Yeah. Did we uh, cover everything? I, I think we did. Is there anything in, we in the in the three hours we've been here? <laughs> <laughs> oh my you god! Get good friends together, it's going to happen. But um, Ed, thank Ed, you so you, much for Ed, joining you're us all today, right, man. I, I really <laughs> do. I do want to thank you, Ed, because it was really cool going down to uh, an area that George and I had less experience in, and I got exposed to a lot of cool stuff preparing for this. I'd never actually read Batlash before. I'd never read Jonah Hex before. And oh, you're kidding. Yeah, it was, it was, what can I say? This was an amazing morning for me today. I oh, woke up great. at six and just started reading and I was so pumped to talk about this by one o'clock. Oh, oh that's thank good. You. That's good. Well, thank you for the chance. I, I don't know how much I was able to bring to it except fond memories, but uh, your recall for information. That's half the battle. Are you kidding me? That's, that's the what we're here for. <laughs> fond memories, man. And, and we, no. we're going to have to get you back on here again too, because um, it really Anytime. was a pleasure talking to you today. Oh, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to be on. The CCF in Depth theme song is written, produced, and performed by Paul King. Thanks to Scott Harris King, no relation, who created the original Classic Comics Forum podcast. A huge, massive, super thank you to our Patreon supporters, including Bill Sinclair, Marty Golia, Michael Gallagher, Paolo Zakedu, Tim Schneider, and Berkeley. You are our shiny knights in armor who keep us going and keep our morale up as well. Thanks for sticking th with us through all of the ridiculous shenanigans that we pull. Speaking of ridiculous shenanigans, my gosh, if you're looking for more CCF and Def content, have you yet wandered over to Patreon.com? where you can get access to the hidden secret Holy Jesus, ridiculous the stuff that we have there waiting for you, including George and I singing a karaoke version of arguably the worst incarnation of I've Got You Babe ever published to the internet. It's a true exercise in pain, both existential and physical, to listen to. But on top of that, we just uh, started our new series, Off the Cuff, available exclusively to our Patreon members, we just did two episodes on Neil Adams and Vince Coletta, where if you've ever wanted to hear the behind-the-scenes stories about Vince Coletta in strip clubs or uh, Neil Adams making people who work for him cry at conventions, uh, you might want to check those out. We have two more in the pipelines that will be being published in the next two weeks. So this is a great way to get a lot of extra content, as well as help ensure that the CCF and the CCF in depth will be around for many, many years to come. So please check it out at patreon.com slash the classic comics forum. 
CCF and Def is produced in partnership with the Classic Comics Forum, the friendliest group of knowledgeable geeks you'll ever find on the internet. Come visit us at classiccomics.org or find us on Facebook, and we'll see you next month. Classiccomics.org